Wow, good evening, everyone. It is so great to be with you this evening, and what a blessing, Jules, uh, to have you share with us. Thank you so much for that. Um, I, along with my husband, Owen, work amongst the post-grad community here in the church. And as Mark said, tonight for this Jesus session, we are exploring together Jesus, the one who defeats death. Jesus, the risen one. We're going to be thinking about the resurrection, about heaven, about the new creation. I uh, said to our son, who's six, that this is our topic for this evening. And he kind of looked at me a bit puzzled, and he said, why not Christmas? It's the 1st of December. And I thought, okay, fair point. This does all seem rather sort of Easter-focused. Um, but then I uh, sort of spotted a moment, you know, for a classic mum kids' bedtime mini-sermon. And was going to say, you know, kids, actually... Tonight's topic, it's so about Christmas, because the reason that Jesus came is to bring us hope and eternal life, and, and our son, I think, can spot these mum, kids' bedtime, mini-sermon moments coming a mile off, and that was not what he was after. So literally, I made it about three words, and he turned his back on me and just walked off. Um, hopefully, we'll stick together a little longer this evening, um, because actually, Jesus, the risen one, the one who is risen today, Jesus, the risen one, the resurrection hope that we have, it is central to all that we have and know and are as followers of Jesus. You know, the hope that we have in the risen Jesus, this is the very hope that we want to share with people as we invite them into the carol services that we've got coming up in the coming days. You know, this hope of Jesus, the God who defeats death, the risen one, this is the hope that we long to share with a world that perhaps right now is particularly weary, with a world that is particularly lost, with a world that is hurting, with a world that is uncertain about the future. You know, Paul gets the magnitude of this topic that we're focusing on this evening when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and so is our faith. And C.S. Lewis echoes that when he says of the resurrection, if the thing happened, it was the central event in the history of the world. I was around five when I had my first significant uh, encounter with death. My grandpa, Hugh Morgan, a good solid Welsh name, uh, was just 63 years old when unexpectedly one Saturday morning he died. You know, I was only five, but we were quite a close family, so I had by that point spent many times and moments sat on his lap hearing him read me stories or sing songs or being allowed to steal sweets from his secret sweet stash that he had. You know, I can clearly remember swimming in the sea with him in um, South End in Essex. I can remember his love of rugby. I can remember his uh, passionate Welsh accent from the pulpit. He was a preacher and a pastor. 
Um, I can remember his gentleness. You know, people speak a lot about him as a really gentle and godly man. And I can remember how not long before he died, he bought sort of a video camera, you know, one of those old-fashioned now camcorders, so that he could record these family moments. And so over the years, because I've watched lots of these videos, I could imitate for you right now the very intonation with which in his Welsh, gentle yet commanding tone, he used to say my name. And when he died, my school teacher, who was a Christian, Miss Knowles, gave me this book. Yes, I have still got it. I'm really sorry to the school librarian. I reckon it's clocked up quite a fee by now. Uh, but this book is all about a girl whose grandfather dies. And it was really significant for me, not only in journeying through this first significant loss, but also in my own faith with Jesus. At the end of this book is a prayer that says, and it's written in sort of kids' handwriting, Dear God, thank you for Grandpa, and please look after him. I'm glad you made heaven so that we don't have to be so sad. Grandma says that you have room for everyone who believes in you. Dear God, I believe in you. And I was given that book by Miss Knowles, and I must have prayed that prayer a hundred times. The words became mine. And over the years, as I've encountered the reality of death many more times since those early years, and yes, the sort of reality of the significance of Christ's resurrection and the theology of new creation has become more profound. Actually, the simplicity of those words of those prayers still speak to me today of the certain hope that we have in the God who in Christ defeats death in the risen one. And actually, in the final pages of this book, Grandpa and Me, it quotes from the Gospel of John, chapter 11. You know that bit where Jesus raises Lazarus from the grave? And actually, what I want to do now in our remaining few minutes together is take three phrases from that narrative in John chapter 11. Maybe if you've got a Bible, you want to grab it and flick to that point in the Gospel of John so that as I mention these phrases, you can track along with me. You know, this evening, as we gather together, every one of us will have our own story of sadness and of loss and of pain and of grief and of death. And John 11, it's Mary and Martha's story. Their brother, verse 1, Lazarus is ill, but then by verse 14, we read that he has died. And it's after his death that Jesus finally arrives to his friends, Mary and Martha. And we read in verse 33 that he sees Mary weeping, and he sees the others weeping, and he is deeply moved and troubled in his spirit. And verse 34, he says, where have you laid him? Where is Lazarus? And they say, come and see. And then here's our first phrase, verse 35, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. You see, death is the great enemy. Death is the great enemy, and the pain of it, the loss of it, the grief of it, the reality of it is captured here as Jesus weeps. Have you ever wondered what is going on in this verse? You know, surely Jesus knew that he was about to raise Lazarus from the grave. And surely Jesus knew, and he just told the disciples many times, that he would be crucified, and he would be raised. And in that moment of his own resurrection would usher in a new dawn of new creation, hope, and eternal life. And he knows all of that, and yet he cries. He weeps. 
You know, why is it that Jesus here weeps and cries? Well, I think in this moment, Jesus is expressing the full reality that this is not how it was supposed to be. Death is not how it was supposed to be. And in this moment, as he weeps at the tomb of his friend, he is, and actually the original word here in Greek, is like this guttural tone that comes out of Jesus. Maybe it's a sound that you have made in the face of death, or you have heard someone make this sort of guttural groaning and sadness, expressing the loss and the sadness and the mourning of all those before Jesus and all those who after Jesus would stand in the face of death as they mourn the loss of those they love. You see, death is a universal experience, isn't it? And it's a universal fear. And Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 says to us, we don't grieve as those without hope. It doesn't say we don't grieve. You know, here we have this model in Jesus as he weeps at the tomb that it is okay for us as followers of him to simultaneously hold on to him as the risen one, as the implication of his resurrection, of the absolute certain hope we have that he is returning and that we will live with him forever to hold on to that truth and yet to mourn for those we will miss, for those that we long to see, for the sadness and the reality of death that we see that would rob and steal and kill and destroy. You see, we can follow Jesus in this pattern and we can follow the invitation of Paul to be those who grieve, yes, but have hope. We have hope. We are those who grieve and have hope. We are those who mourn and we look to Jesus. We are those who engage with the reality of death. We're not blind to it. We're not living in our own little world as followers of Jesus, but we are those who speak the life and the truth and the hope of God in Christ. Because you see, our second phrase in John chapter 11 comes when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. It's there in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus says this to Martha as they're in the midst of this sort of theological debate. And Jesus doesn't say to Martha, oh, Martha, if you just hold on tight to the metaphor of sort of resurrection and eternal life, or he doesn't say to Martha, you know, eternal life is coming in the future if you just sort of grit your teeth and and hold on. No, you see, the hope that we know as followers of Jesus and the hope that we're offering the world around us, the hope that we're praying that people will come into the church and these carol services and hear that this hope isn't a concept. It's a person. It's Jesus, the one who stands here in the face of death and says, I am the resurrection and the life. Our hope as followers of Christ isn't just a concept, an idea, an ideology, but is a person, the one who for all eternity has always been and is this very day, the 1st of December, and will always be forevermore eternal, the one who is the resurrection and the life. You see, our hope is based on a person and our hope is based on a specific moment in human history when Christ, the eternal Son of the Father, was raised bodily to life himself. And Jews and Martha here believed that there would be this resurrection 
at the end of time, this sort of future event, this future moment where there would be a resurrection. Martha mentions it when she says to Jesus, oh yes, Lazarus will rise on that day. And she's referring to this expected final day of the resurrection for those who are righteous. But there was no expectation for the Jews that this resurrection would happen to one person ahead of everyone else. And that the Messiah of Israel himself would be the one who would pave the way. And who in so doing would usher in a new dawn and give us therefore certainty of what is to come for us in him. It's a bit like, maybe I'll use my fist for a second. You know, here is the longing of Israel. Okay, here is the longing of the people of God. We hear it through the prophets. How long, O oh Lord, we're waiting for that day where your goodness will come, your healing will come. Here's the longing. And here's what they're longing for. The kingdom of God, the full reality of his healing, of his goodness, of him dwelling with them. There's what they're longing, there's their longing, there's what they're longing for. And there's this sort of gap that in their understanding was the day of the Lord, that gap in the middle where there would be this sort of resurrection. But then Jesus comes and what does he say? The kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross for sin and through his resurrection and through his ascension and through the sending of the Spirit as Pentecost, there is this overlapping of the ages. And we live in that time where, yes, we still long, yes, we are waiting for, the, for Christ's return and for the fullness of the coming kingdom, but because Christ was crucified for sin, because he on the cross defeated sin and death, because he is seated today at the right hand of the Father and because we have the power of his spirit at work within us, we can be certain of what we long for and what we hope for. We are in this sort of overlapping of the ages. You see, our faith and our hope beyond the grave today isn't based on something that we sort of hope might happen one day, but is actually based on something that has already happened in Christ Jesus. On the third day, when the tomb was empty and the women went and found that announcement, he is not here for he has risen. And 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 puts it like that. In fact, Christ has been raised. You know, Paul has had this whole thing, oh, if this hasn't happened, then everything we're saying is in vain and our faith is in vain. And then he says, no, in fact, Christ has been raised. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And that's a sort of biblical language for those who have died. You see, Jesus Christ, through this moment in history, this moment in time, through his bodily resurrection as the risen one, he is the first fruits. It's like he's blazed the trail for us. It's like he's gone ahead for us, and he has absolutely dealt with the greatest enemy, death. It is finished. He has dealt with it. And so, as our bodies fail, whenever that might be, maybe we have, even like Jules, tasted some of the reality of that already. But as our bodies fail, as we even are on our deathbeds, Because Christ is the first fruits, because he is the risen one, because he is our hope, not a concept, because he has defeated death, because it happened in history, we can take a hold of his hand and know that in him we will be raised and know that in him 
there will be a day where he will wipe away every tear, that in him we will enjoy that newly restored bodily resurrection for ourselves. And so then, our final phrase, our third and final phrase from John 11 for this evening. This is the moment where Jesus says, after he said, Lazarus, come out, he says, unbind him, take off his grave clothes. Do you know what's really interested me about this? That Jesus doesn't do that bit. Jesus is the only one as the resurrection and the life, you can speak the words of miracle to Lazarus's body and say, come out, be raised. Only Jesus can do that. But then isn't it interesting that he calls the disciples around him to be the ones that take off the grave clothes? You see, in him, in Christ, in the one who has defeated death, in the risen one, we are invited to become agents of resurrection here and now. We are invited to become those who respond to his invitation to remove the grave clothes, to unbind people, to free people from the reality and the trappings of death. You see, Roman 8 says with great confidence that the same power, the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead lives within us. That same spirit, the spirit of God, lives within us and invites us to be today, here and now, as we wait to see Christ face to face, to be those who join him in being agents of resurrection, to be those who go and listen to that invitation of his to untie the grave clothes. N.T. Wright says this, the mission of the church is nothing more or less than the outworking in the power of the spirit of Jesus's bodily resurrection and thus the anticipation of the time when God will fill the earth with his glory, transform the old heavens and earth into the new, and raise his children from the dead to populate and rule over the redeemed world he has made. I was a secondary school English teacher several years ago, and so I had to mark lots of my pupils' work, and um, you know, I'm sure teachers can identify with this, that it often brought a bit of a smile to my face. Um, And there was this one pupil, Mark. I won't tell you his surname as well, because that's not very fair. But he was a budding scientist. And there was this GCSE or O-level task in English where you'd have to take a sort of non-fiction article or newspaper, and you'd have to do a pre-see task. You'd have to summarize what it said and get the facts right. Mark, he was brilliant at this. Every time, tick, 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 full marks, excellent, short, sharp sentences, to the point, no faff, get the facts right, get full marks for the pricey. Um, He was great. But then, when it came to his creative writing, this is sort of what it used to say. It was December 1st. The decorations were up. The lights were on. I ate a mince pie. Time and time again, as I was marking his work, I would find myself writing the same thing. Mark, don't put the full stop too soon. Don't put the full stop too soon. And you see the risen one, the God who has defeated death, invites us this evening to join with him to be those who don't put the full stop too soon who into situations of despair speak his hope, who into those situations of desperation bring his life, to be those who join with him to write at the end of sentences, resurrection, hope, to not put the full stop too soon. Jesus says to us today, 
Will you untie the grave clothes of someone this week in the trappings of death? Who will you speak my life to? Who will you bring my hope to? Who will you offer me as the only way to life eternal to this week? Who will you lead into freedom? Paula Gooder, a theologian, has said this, belief in the resurrection is an act of rebellion against the evil, corruption, and oppression that can so easily swamp us. Believing in the resurrection can be a refusal to accept the world as it is, that it can never change, and that we must accept it simply as it is. And so I wonder, this coming week, this coming month, in 2022, where will you finish off the sentence with resurrection? What situations, what people, what context is the risen one, the one who has defeated death, invited you to be the person who unties the grave clothes, to speak his words of resurrection, hope, and truth, and life, to bring hope into despair, to bring joy into places of sorrow. Because we are the ones who can echo with Job in the Old Testament who knew such suffering. I know my Redeemer lives. And at the end, he will stand upon the earth. I'm so excited for that day. So excited for that day and so excited to see again Grandpa Hugh Morgan. And I know my Redeemer lives. Will we join with him whilst we wait to be those who finish off sentences with resurrection, hope, and truth and power in his spirit? Amen.